I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the The Flight Flight Safety Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, John, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. We are going to be talking about a lot of good stuff today. I know that you and I have been traveling and, you know, our paths have crossed, thank goodness. And uh, I'm looking forward to that continuing as this pandemic and the rules regarding the pandemic are eased. So I'm looking forward to today's show. I am as well. And I'd like to remind everybody that uh, today's show is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. And Avemco has offered a very good deal to our listeners that just for listening to our show, you can get a 5% discount on your insurance, whether it be how loss for an airplane or if you're CFI insurance, personal liability insurance, whatever your insurance needs related to general aviation, Avemco is there to provide you with that insurance and also give you a discount just for listening to this podcast. So I would like to thank Avemco for that. And Greg, we, we uh, have a, an interesting program today, so why don't we get right into it? I'm looking forward to it. Let's go. John, we're, uh, we're fortunate to be at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, my alma mater. And, uh, of course, they've been gracious hosts to, uh, to allow us to be on campus without a police escort. We are very blessed because of your previous reputation and of course your background i mean it's kind of questionable so we're lucky that they've given us a pass to be on campus and of course use their uh their radio station studio for this particular podcast and it is nice to be in a professional environment but it's even nicer because you and i are together yes throughout this pandemic this is probably the the third or fourth time in the last year yeah it's been a long long uh oh. Yeah, well, again, it's uh, it has been a long haul, but uh, we are fortunate to be together, and hopefully, uh, as this pandemic, I won't say winds down because it'll always be with us, but at least it gives us the opportunity to uh, to be together more. So I'm looking forward to it, and of course, I am definitely looking forward to being back at uh, at Embry Riddle in the future doing uh, these podcasts because I like coming down here for the studio, and I I like being exposed to all these young people. Because uh, a pretty impressive group of students. Yes, absolutely. I'm impressed every time I come back on campus and I get to speak to classes and use the university's assets for uh, for teaching my AX investigation course. So I am always, always blessed and impressed when I come back to campus. And to, to that end, today we have a couple of students here. 
that have uh, rung the bell in my mind for the work that they've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have two master's level students uh, with us, Sarah Lee and, and Paige Sorrow. We're going to start with you, Sarah. Give us a little bit of history, who you are and how'd you end up coming to Embry-Riddle and then what you're working on now in your master's program. I heard that we have a lot of international listeners for this podcast as well. So I'm from Korea, but I was born and raised in New Zealand. Oh. So I have a multicultural background. I did my bachelor's degree at Mass University in New Zealand in aviation management. And I came to Embry-Riddle as an exchange student. Oh, wow. And I, I was just fascinated cool. about the environment, all the buildings, people, professors. So I decided to stay here for my um, master's degree. And I did my master's in science and aeronautics, concentrating in aviation safety and aviation management. Great. And while doing that, um, I did my thesis. I was very curious about evacuation efficiency. And some professors very inspired me on that, like Professor Brickhouse and Dr. Liu. And I wanted to find out some of the factors that affect the evacuation efficiency. And one thing that I concentrated on was the effects of carry-on baggage on evacuation efficiency. And I know that NTSB in 2018 suggested the FAA to conduct some study about the effects of carry-on baggage on passenger deplaning times. And that's one of the motivations that came up to me. And the previous accidents like Aeroflot Flight 1492 and the American Airlines accidents, we can see those people evacuating with their carry-on baggage. And I was very curious, like, what, what's the numerical time and what are the factors that affect the people's behavioral intentions to evacuate with those? So I used a simulation. For, I had two studies. The first one was like a simulation to find out the exact time, how long would it be increased by having um, like 0%, 50% or 80% of passengers evacuating with their carry-on baggage. And I found some significant difference. Like if we have 50% of the passengers evacuating with their carry-on baggage, it would significantly increase that time, maybe above the 90-second rule as well. So there was something significant that I found. And I also looked at the factors that affect the passengers' behaviors, such as um, the attitude on the evacuating with the carry-on baggage, perceived risk of their current situation, perceived value of their luggage. For example, they have their tangible products like your phones, your bags, and those intangible products like the like photos in the phones or messages in your phones. And those factors that I looked at and I surveyed 300 passengers. Wow. And, and, and it's interesting because every time there is some sort of event where there's survivability, when we look at, I think, more the, the more notable survivable accidents like Miracle on the Hudson and, and a variety of others, where you see in that particular instance, you have people standing on the wing with a briefcase or a carry-on. And it's, I mean, and over and over again, as a safety professional, John and I talk about it. It's like, what the hell were they thinking? I mean, why are they taking this stuff with them? And of course, yes, as you spoke, there are things that are near and dear. I mean, you know, that phone, my life is on my phone, my wallet's in my briefcase. And, and of course, I want to, you know, salvage that because it, I start thinking about, man, if I have to replace all this or try to find this or figure this out, it's a nightmare. But in a life and death situation, how do people look at, you know, well, am I going to survive this or is my phone going to survive this? I mean, what, what's that mindset? 
That's what I was curious about. That's why I conducted a survey on the passengers. And interestingly, I also found that as the perceived risk increase, like if they perceive that the situation is more risky, they're more likely to have the intention to take their carry-on bags. And something that I figured out was if passengers try to get their bags, retrieve their bags from the overhead compartments, then other people will also look at it and maybe I should get my own as well. And those thinkings really affects the survivability of the passengers. And it's important that we have to really support the awareness of these dangers to passengers. In your paper... Do you make recommendations or suggestions for the industry to try to incorporate or adopt to help change that that mindset of the passenger so that they really get the point that, you know what, you just got to get yourself out and leave everything else behind? Right. That was one of my main recommendations for my thesis. Really, the industry have to increase their awareness, not just the NTSB, the airlines, during the um, safety briefings as well. Only I found some airlines really mentioned or emphasized on the effects of carry-on baggage, like not to take their carry-on bags while evacuating. So <clears throat> that's one of the main recommendations that I made for the, the industry. You know, the briefings have gotten so long. I just noticed on my trip down here, that the uh, with all the masks, you had the the pilot was on when he did his typical. The weather in Chicago is that such and such, but then he mentions the masks and sitting down because we've had so many passengers that have been causing problems by taking their mask off or trying to get up and move when they shouldn't be when it's inappropriate. And, and the briefings have gotten so long, and you just look at the people sitting around the cabin, and they're just they're not paying attention. Yeah, and did you look at that as far as I see it all the time? John and I have talked about this on previous shows where I was very critical of the airlines for not emphasizing the use of the oxygen mask in, in the event that it drops because people aren't conscious or consciously thinking about the fact that they got to pull their, their face mask off before they put an oxygen mask on in an airplane or they're not going to be able to breathe anything. A lot of people, I see it all the time, still tune out the message. They're still on their phones, reading a paper, doing something else. How would you suggest that an airline emphasize the importance of leaving stuff behind? I mean, it's, they ramble on and they say, leave everything behind and just get out of the airplane, you know, follow the, the lighting or, or the marks on the floor to the nearest exit, and they keep going with their spiel. What kind of emphasis? Is it a shock value? Do you say, if you don't leave this behind, you're going to die to get their attention? Or do you just continue on with what we're saying in these briefings as part of the briefing that, hey, you got to leave it behind, you know, as part of the the normal spiel? I mean, how do you get their attention? Right. First of all, the problem is currently people really don't know why they don't have to take, uh, why they shouldn't take their bags while evacuating because, even spiky items in their bags can damage the emergency slides or you can drop your bags in the aisles and block other people's passage. So um, those can be emphasised. I think safety videos these days that airlines use, for example, the Air New Zealand or Japan Airlines, they make it very entertaining. So Mm -hmm. passengers tend to focus on it a bit more. So I think some entertaining videos, maybe showing passengers carrying baggage and make big X sign, those can be effective. And also it will be nice if we can 
really let them know the actual consequences of taking the bags as well because passengers, people really don't know the real consequences of it. That's why my study concentrated on the numerical value. It increases the time by this much. Mm -hmm. And as the FAA suggested, the 90-second rule that we all know, we, um, the all passengers at full seating capacity, including the crew members, should evacuate within 90 seconds or less. And if you take your bags, it really increases that time up to 90-second rule. And I was a bit curious. I want to ask you too about your opinions about 90-second rule. Well, John, um, I will give you the first word since I always give you the last word. I'll give you the first word on this and then I'll chime in. Well, the 90-second rule really was not based on anything in fact. It came in a long time ago before we had the ability to do the level of analysis that we can do today. So it was a sort of arbitrary but it has served us pretty well to date because it really hasn't. And I served on an aviation rulemaking committee on, on uh, evacuations of airplanes back in the uh, 90s, the early 90s, actually. And we looked at all those factors that come into play during evacuations, but we did not look at the baggage, carrying your baggage off the airplane. And I participated in a number of, of evacuations over in, in London because they have a better facility than we had here in the United States to experiment with evacuations and, uh, and also the critical behaviors that people have. And it was quite interesting to see what, pe what happens to people when you motivate them to act. You know, they were given a, a 10 or 20 pounds for the first X number of people out of this 70 or 80 passenger fuselage. It was interesting to see what rows the passengers were in those first ones out, and they were the ones that you would least expect because they wanted the money, and they were very creative in climbing over seats and, and uh, to get out of the airplane. So those factors all came into it, but we were not looking at the, the baggage issue, which we now see as growing because the airlines haven't actually, by charging fees for checking your baggage, have actually encouraged the increase in what's carried onto the airplane. And also the, uh, the time to recover your baggage has increased dramatically over the last 30 years. So it was a period of time where you checked your bag and by the time you got to the baggage claim, your bag was already there. Today, and just, just yesterday, I waited about 25 minutes for my bag, right? And that's at, that was at Orlando where you already have about a 10 minute ride from the gate to the baggage claim area. There's a lot of dynamics in there that no one has looked at and no one in government has looked at in years and years and years. Thank you for that commentary, Mr. Golia. <laughs> now, John's got a lot of experience. One of the I've done a number of events throughout my career with evacuation. Of course, one of my concerns is the carry on. But when you look at an A380 where you're coming out of the upper deck on a very long slide, that's a concern if you're trying to carry something down a slide. I mean, I carry a briefcase with me that's at least 15, 20 pounds when I'm carrying my life in it. Last thing I want to do is be trying to slide down a slide with that bag because I know that I'm not coming down as I should. I'm probably going to be coming down as a tumbleweed because of that bag and, and the fact that it, it it's going to hamper my ability. 
I think about the fact that we have older people who are not as mobile, and now they're trying to carry something with them. First off, they have an inability to get out of the aircraft just because of either their stature or their mobility, dexterity. And now they're going to try and carry some heavy bag with them as well. That's going to slow or even stop the process. And then I've worked accidents where when the evacuation slides have been blown and and extended, because of the attitude of the aircraft, the slides were vertical. They weren't as designed. And now they get windblown. So now you can't use that exit anymore. And if people are trying to throw things out ahead of them, you've created a lot of issues. So there is a dynamic. And, And I agree with you that there needs to be an emphasis And I think just from the human standpoint, I won't say we have to get callous, but we have to explain why. People don't like being told something without really understanding why they're being told to do something. And if I think we explain it like you were suggesting a little better, that this is the reason why we we don't want you carrying the bag. And if we do it in an entertaining or at least an intention-capturing way, that if you do this, this is what happens, not only to you, but everyone around you. Because if the person in front of you stops you from evacuating and you're you're trying to do the right thing, you're going to get hurt because they're trying to do something that they shouldn't be doing. And it has an adverse effect on you trying to do the right thing. So I agree with you that we need to find a way that emphasizes, and we all know if you watch some of the, the safety videos, they are entertaining. I like traveling internationally because they seem to have that mindset and it does capture your attention and it engages you. So I agree with you that, of course, we have to find a better way of emphasizing the whole means of why it is so important that you only got 90 seconds and that's on a very good day under controlled environment. You have an airplane that crashes like Asiana that's on fire. You don't have 90 seconds. If that airplane crashes at night, even if it's upright, you can't see. You don't have 90 seconds. If that airplane's upside down in the Everglades and you survive, you don't have 90 seconds and you aren't going to carry your stuff out. And I think that if we capture that and we emphasize it in a, quote, politically correct way, whether it's entertainment or just emphasis, I think maybe we'll change that mindset and that in that dynamic so that we don't have people carrying their carry-ons and their bag, you know, their suitcase and and their big handbag. And in John's case, you know, he carries, I mean, you have to put it, his stuff goes in a shipping container and he tries to stick that in the overhead. It's just crazy. So, well, that's a great, that's that's great to hear that uh, your study is is well on its way. I can't wait to read it. So we expect to get a copy of Thank it. Thank you. I'll definitely send it to you. Good. Because yeah. we're going we're gonna to talk about it after we read it. <laughs> we're going to be, uh, you know, asking you a lot more questions. Good morning, John on the ground. Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Hey, 920, runway 248, taxi. Our other guest today, Paige, you two are in the master's program. Yes, sir. And you are about to graduate as well? I have a little bit of time left in my master's. And what is it that you are emphasizing now in in your master's thesis and, and program? So in my master's program right now, I study occupational safety management. And I started the master's immediately after finishing my aerospace and occupational safety undergrad degree here. 
So in the occupational safety program, I'm making use of the connections from aviation safety to further study transportation safety as a whole. And I think that a lot can be learned from aviation safety management systems. And so that's my big focus. I really appreciate SMS and our implementation of SMS here at the university and the flight department. And so that's what I'm hoping to focus my thesis on is SMS as it can be expanded to other perhaps higher risk, higher stress industries. One of the things about this show that John and I have always tried to emphasize is we're always trying to tell the backstory the stuff that you don't see in a written article or an NTSB report. We're always trying to fill in the gaps and, and tell some of the, the real story, if you will. Okay, tell us your real story. How'd you get here? <laughs> Where are you from? And, and how, did, how was it that you, you came to Embry-Riddle and, and got into occupational safety? Yes. So when I was young, I became fascinated with aircraft investigations and air disasters. And so from the time about age 11 or 12, I was watching you on TV. <laughs> God, I'll tell you, there has to be a better life than to watch me on TV. I mean, there's sports, there's guys, there's all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Not just me. It was certainly the most entertaining way to spend my time. There you go. That's <laughs> what I like to hear. I was entertainment for you. Okay. So I've always been fascinated by why things go wrong and what we can do to prevent bad things from happening again, whether it's in aviation or transportation in general or in the medical field. So I feel that my life's purpose is to do safety and I think that my passion is transportation safety. So that's what I'm pursuing. And so when I was young, I knew I wanted to study aviation safety primarily. And so I pursued my bachelor's here at Embry-Riddle. And this has certainly become home for me. Embry-Riddle has given me so many opportunities. And so now I work here as a student employee in the aviation safety department. And I was given the opportunity to pursue my master's. And there's so many additional benefits to studies here at Embry-Riddle, whether it's your networking or our career opportunities for internships and research and things like that. So that's why it was an easy decision for me to pursue my master's here. I'm very happy to be here still. And what do you see as a trend going forward? I mean, when you look at occupational safety, people are going to say and, and have said, because I've heard it, well, you know, we've developed all of these policies and procedures. We have all these programs in place. Some of them work. Some of them don't. Some of them are a placebo. They look good, but nobody really follows them. How is it that you empower people to think safety, like Bob was talking about earlier? I mean, I've always believed that safety needs to be a core value, regardless of what you do, whether it's walking across the street or anything else. It's got to be a core value. You can't just turn safety on and off. How do you encourage that to not only employees, but even students here at Embry-Riddle and, and, and in life? Because everything I try to talk about and John and I have talked about on previous shows, these are all life lessons. We're not teaching anything new. We're just showing a different application of what we should have learned as we were growing up. How do you encourage people in that kind of, in, in aviation being a very dynamic environment, to think safety all the time and identify those things that could put them or others at risk? I mean, Sarah's looking at it from the perspective of evacuating aircraft, 
But how do you get them to think like that all the time, even if they're not in aviation? I think it certainly starts from instilling safety as a core value. And, you know, we talk in class all the time about how management sets the stage for a positive safety culture and management promotes that just culture that's non-punitive. And I think members of management, members of the university, your professors and your role models in classes have to set a good example by promoting safety, not just when it's seen, but as Bob said, do the right thing when no one is watching. So in you know work experience, we talk about safety in an office setting and safety on the flight line and the maintenance hangers, but it's important for us individually to be instilling safety values with our families when we leave here when you know we're driving on the road like after work if you're seen speeding like 20 miles over the limit um, and someone identifies you as the safety person that's certainly not a good look and it's going to discredit the work that you try to do in this type of setting like in a university or at an airline or things like that so 20 over does that ring a bell shh I, I wasn't going really 20 over. <laughs> Trust me. At least that's what they didn't write me up for. So I'm good there. So with with this this education that you're getting, where do you plan to go? What's your aspiration once you leave this cozy environment of Embry-Riddle? I am still keeping... You know, lots of open questions at this point, but I did my undergraduate, my capstone, or you could call it a thesis, on maritime safety management Mm. compared to the baseline, the gold standard of aviation safety management. So I'm interested in expanding what I think is the best way to improve safety as a whole, which is the safety management structure. I think that implementing that in other industries is a great way to improve safety wherever you are. Whether it's an occupational setting, I think eventually safety management is gonna be the standard with OSHA and other international regulators, but we're just not quite there yet. So I'd like to pursue safety management, whether it's in aviation or maritime railroad or even like motor safety. So that's where I am keeping my sights, but I don't have any immediate answers just keeping my options open. Well, that, it, it's great to hear that you you know you're looking beyond aviation as as wonderful as this university is, and it definitely gave me the opportunity to build the career that I've had over the last I'm not going to tell you how many years, <laughs> but I've been fortunate throughout my career. I've given safety presentations and and safety discussions and and actually teaching for mining companies, for pharmaceutical companies. The principles, because people want to know how we do it in aviation, because when you look at it, of all the industries, we are the safest. Other than new power plants, we have a lot of regulations, but those regulations are very important in the day-to-day operations that we conduct, and we conduct them at the highest levels of safety. And we've seen it in the medical industry where we're trying to take the principles of CRM and things into the operating room. But I agree with you that the core product of safety management systems could benefit the mining companies and the pharmaceuticals because everybody has the end game of being or operating at the highest levels of safety. They just don't know how to necessarily get there. But we've developed a lot of that 
already in aviation and aerospace. I mean, when we look at now private space travel, that's going to take the highest levels of safety because now you're depending on a public industry to incorporate what we believe is normally embedded by government oversight or government action. That is a NASA or the FAA or somebody with military. We have that dependence. So I'm glad to hear that you're looking beyond aviation because I think maritime could definitely benefit from it. John, as a board member, you know, dealt with everything, including aviation, but everything else, maritime and, and highway and, and pipeline. And I think pipeline could benefit, yes. uh, it, the, you know. Every the, segment of, of our economic structure can benefit. The trouble is I wish it was named something else because we call it safety management system. And the first thing that happens to our, our business school graduates is it's a safety system. And it's just put in that safety box when it really should be the management of your business. Because Absolutely. if you actually put in place what we call the safety management system as a business tool to run your business, you will be amazed at what comes up and how much better in, uh, your operation can be. But we just got this business management structure that says safety is over here, but managing the business is over here. They're almost taught to be opposites when they ought to be married together because this system can really help. And they've shown that in Canada and Australia and New Zealand have shown that this is a very efficient business tool. But we're not smart enough here in the United States yet to put our arms around that. And one of the things that I've seen with, with clients is they look at safety as an expense rather than as a revenue generator. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, if you're very efficient and you do things safely, I'm saving you money because the money that you pay me right now, I'm going to save you millions in liability lawsuits, accidents, and all of the things that go with the fact of having an incident or an accident. And so I think that there needs to be a change of a mindset about safety, that safety is a value-added benefit that is not an expense, but actually can be, in some regard, a revenue generator. Because as long as you're not having accidents that cost you $100 million, that's $100 million more in your pocket than paying out on this liability and that kind of thing. So I think that we need to have that bit of a, a, a culture mindset change so that companies embrace safety more than they actually do. Because John and I have seen it over the years, especially these small operators operating on a shoestring where they are looking at the bottom line. And, and if I have to incorporate, you know, some sort of SMS type program, that means I got to train people. That means I got to put, you know, all sorts of processes in place. It's going to slow me down. It's going to cost me money. I'm not doing it. Absolutely. Safety has a big, you know, it might have a big dollar sign commitment up front for management. And that's the direct cost of setting up, like we discussed, the safety management system and hiring qualified personnel. There's that direct cost immediately that needs to be signed off and paid up front. But there are almost like incalculable indirect costs that could come over the course of five years or 10 years. Improving the safety culture, it's hard to prove how much money that saves. But having positive reporting allows you to catch issues before they become a liability, like you said. So safety is an investment that pays off over time. And we just have to invest in it and trust. And then we use 
data analysis to see what we're actually saving. That's great. I didn't get to ask you, Sarah, where do you go after Embry-Riddle? What are you going to do? I'm going to stay at Embry-Riddle for my PhD degree. And of and course, after that? that's great for Embry-Riddle. <laughs> but then what are you going to do? Where are you going to move to? After I finish my PhD degree, I hope to stay in the research um, area, maybe in the professional degree, um, do some lecture. I'll see how it goes. I think Embry-Riddle could use some young, talented professors at this university. So I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we got a couple of connections. We can probably push that in the right direction. What part of Korea are you from? Jeju Island, I'm not sure if you know. Oh, I know it very well. Really? Yes, because uh, unfortunately, I've worked several accidents involving Korean Air. And I was out at the island because Korean Air had their ab initio training facility out there. Oh, yes. They so do. I was out there many times. They call that the honeymoon island or the... It's the honeymoon island. My, my parents were there for honeymoon and they decided to stay there. Well, that was a very nice place to grow up, I'm sure. So. Low speed ailerons, normal and normal. Rudder travel pitch field. Aye. Nav and exterior lights. Yeah. Servo control. Aye. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Seatbelt no smoke. Well, ladies, we we really appreciate you being on the show today. I think to wrap up this discussion, I think it's important that what we try to do, and John and I have been talking about it, and, and we're going to start a segment going forward about diversity. Diversity is, of course, a huge subject right now whether it's gender or color. How do you feel about what's going on with diversity in aviation? You two are young ladies who apparently have a, a very good pathway. What would you suggest to young ladies that are listening to this show that may be in high school or whatever and pursuing some sort of career or at least a path into aviation or aerospace? What would you suggest We'll start with you, Paige. I think that it's so important for young girls or young women who are looking to enter the STEM industry, whether it's specifically aviation or not, to find the supportive groups that will help encourage and encourage them to grow professionally. So my immediate thought is women in aviation groups. There is nothing better than having a strong group of friends and professional colleagues who encourage you to pursue your dreams and give you the resources that allow you to make that happen. So we have a lot of women-focused groups here on campus, and those groups are known for helping with you know, preparation for the career fair and professional networking and providing a space where underrepresented groups can feel more comfortable. So I think the best step is to try and get involved in something like that and look for opportunities that are geared for your personal success. So for me, it might be like the Women in Aviation group, a great group of women here on campus that do a lot of good work for the other girls. Great. Sarah? As a woman international student studying in the United States, 
unfortunately, I didn't feel any discomfort while studying here. Like, I had a lot of support, including the School of Philanthropy Councils. They had, like, so many opportunities to get funded for my research project. And I had professors who also、um, guided me through the pathway. So, coming into the aviation field as an international student woman, I think I was fortunate enough to find、um, good people. Good professors and good groups to support me, especially here at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. How about because you are an international student, what would you say to our international listeners, the, the young women that are listening that may be in high school or whatever in Korea or anywhere else to pursue aviation or at least aerospace like you? Yes, I was a high school student who was very into aviation. And when I told my friends, like, oh, I want to go into the aviation field, they, they would usually say, like, you, a woman. But as you just get into the field, you wouldn't feel that much difference. And, and they're like, coming into the aviation field, all the other peoples around me, they supported me as if I couldn't feel any difference as a woman or an international student working in aviation. So as long as、um, you're into it, Just start off with your first field. And I came here to the United States because it's one of the biggest countries that I can learn about aviation. It's, it's got the big aviation field. So I think it's a good idea to、um, get some experience outside maybe United States or New Zealand, any other countries to experience aviation as well. Well, that's great to hear. And, and again, we're trying to, to move forward with. At least addressing not only women's issues, but diversity issues through the show, because that is that I believe, and I know John does too, that that has an adverse effect on aviation safety in a variety of different ways, and, and it can carry on into to other industries. So, ladies, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's、thank、been an、you. honor to,、uh, to meet both of you. It sounds like you have promising pathways to some very successful careers. And I'm waiting for that paper. So <laughs> you got to send me the paper. This is what it's all about. And we are appreciative because you are the future. And if there's more people like you, especially women like you, then I think we're in good hands. So thank you again for being on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I hope you enjoy the road trip around here. Oh, we will. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, inform them that they're now friends of the show. Yes, you are friends of the show. You have no place to hide. So that means we can call on you at any time to be on the show and talk about a variety of different things. So that,、uh, that is an honor that will be anointed by John, and、uh, we will definitely keep track of you. So. Thank you. Okay. And I close every show with reminding all of our pilots out there to be safe in their personal life. That goes for everybody. And also to be safe in your flying life. Do a good pre planning session, do a good pre flight of your airplane, and stay engaged. And with that, I'll say thank you to everybody. To listen to more episodes of the show, Go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.